Ok, parfait. We can test our ideas. We have to see if our ideas are true. But this is a luxury. We can test if our ideas are true. And then there's this moment you're there and you see something and you know that in that moment you're still the only person knowing it. That you had your ideas, you see it's true, it just happened. And at that point you share it. Yesterday a postdoc and I was leaving late and she said, oh, I was in the train, please connect. Because there was a piece of data that she really wanted to show because at that point we are now the only two knowing that. These are the moments that is just incredible that this job gives us. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast, where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Priska Liberali is a senior group leader at the Friedrich Miescher Institute for Biomedical Research in Basel, which, for our American listeners, actually is in Switzerland. Priska started her career with a PhD in physical chemistry, studying membranes. But then she turned to cell biology as a postdoctoral fellow, and she studied genetic interactions and regulatory networks. In her recent work, she studies how cells coordinate their behavior to create the higher order structure that we find in multicellular systems. And Priska has earned a lot of recognition for her important work. Only seven years after starting her own lab, she received, for example, the EMBO Gold Medal. And Prisco, we're really looking forward to this session with you because you seem to have a real night science attitude. You've been quoted as saying, sometimes good ideas need time and the courage to just try them. You've also said, I always like change and accept the risks that come along with it. I follow my curiosity. And then regarding your changing of fields, you've said, it's important to be humble enough to work in the field you don't know and try to both learn and see what your different background can bring to it. So, Prisco, those are exactly the kinds of things we want to talk to you about. And first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Itai. That's uh, very nice being here. No, it's great to have you here. Prisca, didn't you say that your students know about the podcast? Yes, and I was also speaking with another colleague, but really the evening before I was at a conference and we were discussing, oh, we should really listen to it, it would be great. Oh, yeah? And, uh, yeah, so, so we had this long conversation about it, also about ideas and where they come from and you know mm. how we all have different uh, thinking process and what is the individual thinking process and how do we deal with it. And then really the day after I get your email. <laughs> That's <laughs> so funny. Great. And it's such a fascinating question, isn't it? Like, where do we get our ideas. My sister and my mom are both artists and designers. And mm. so we also have been discussing a lot with them. What's actually creativity? Is it different for a scientist compared to an artist? Are we both creative, but in very different ways? Because I think I am quite creative in some aspects, but they consider me not very creative. Right. I cannot draw <laughs> and I cannot come up with like weird ways to make uh, an art piece. Yeah, yes. I think it's just this general misunderstanding in society about what we scientists do. We don't explain it very well. We make it sound like we're boring. But, you know, from your perspective, what would be the summary of that discussion? Would you say that you're equally creative or do you think there is a fundamental difference? I think the fundamental difference is what the starting building blocks are of this creativity. So both artists and designer use more everyday concepts or everyday objects 
to mm. play with this creativity, to maybe go against a dogma or an image people have been seeing and then they play with that. So they are creative, but on building blocks of something that we all know. Yeah. While probably as scientists, we first need to study for university, PhD. So I think creativity starts later because we need to first build this knowledge of our building blocks. But I think the trick sometimes is even though you become so highly specialized and, you know, so detailed to really be creative is if you can then remember back the simple questions you were interested in, you know, like these fundamental, beautiful questions, you can do that while still having like a touch for the details. And I think it's important once in a while to really take the step back and seeing where the curiosity or even the obsession came from, you know, what is this first trigger that got you to that place. And then you maybe be flooded by ideas and details and paper that have shown something in a similar direction, but then taking a step back and putting everything together in a different way. Yeah. And, you know, I used to think that science is the same as art in the sense of creativity. Like, why should it be different? We're humans when we do art. We're humans when we do science. It's the same brain. But then I thought that science is different and that there's additional constraints. Like it also has to be true. You have to do an experiment and you can't just uh, say anything. It has to be true. But then I was saying this to a writer and they said it's not true. They said that when they write, they can't just write about anything. There's also like a logic to what can happen. Actually, you can't just write everything or you can't just paint yeah. anything. There's like an internal logic to that as well. So they're under constraints. I don't know if that's true, actually. I mean, if I was a writer, of course I would say that because they don't write without constraints. But I do think that in science, we work under much stronger constraints. Yes, the part of truth in there is quite an important aspect of these boundaries that we have on ourselves. We're wondering, Priska, if you can tell us overall, what is your attitude to the creative process in science? Yes, I've been thinking a bit on what's my thinking process. So I'm a very recursive thinker. I like to think mm. about the same problem many times in many different mm. situations, adding different inputs at different levels. And that comes from discussing with colleagues or even with people completely outside of science and having this recursive process to thinking. And in a way, it's really starting with having an internal model of what's going around me in a field of putting data together in a different way. But then there are things that don't fit. And so when there are things really not fitting in this internal model, this is like a seed where the recursive thinking starts amplifying around. I just find this really interesting that you call it recursive thinking. So can you tell us a bit more about what is being added in each of those cycles that you go through the same problem? It's really at all different scales. I think it's really the conceptual part that is the most important for me because it's partially one of the questions I ask myself very often and is the starting point is the why. You know, it's like, why is this like this? With this why, I think it's really more on the conceptual side more than on the data. I watched an interview with the physicist Richard Feynman where he explained that why questions don't really make any sense in science. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? He's saying you can always like dig deeper and say, but why is that? Right? And then you give a reason and you say, but why is that? Right? And so you never get to to any well, end. like a child, like an eight year old thing. Why? Yeah, why? yeah why? exactly. Yeah, but but why that? <laughs> and I, I never think, grew up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's that. You know, I love why questions myself, but what I'm wondering is actually if maybe a why question is more a question we can ask humans. Like, why did you do that? Like, what was your intention in doing that? And so I was wondering whether actually you use a lot of anthropomorphisms, thinking about your systems as if they had intentions, as if they were humans. Like, you know, why does the cell do this? Yes, I do. Once we had someone was discussing one of the texts I was writing, and this person is a mother tongue British person, and he said, your cells don't have intentions. <laughs> <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like going through my text and he said, you know, you cannot, cells don't have intentions. And so he was changing. You know, what, what was he reacting to? How were you describing the cells? As depressed or unmotivated? No, no, but that they have an action, that they are like, they inducing a certain process that the cells per se. Because they want something. Yeah, they want something. They need, they have like a a big, they need it. (laughs) And Priska, I want to ask you about the insights that you think you have access to in your field now of the systems biology of multicellularity, given your training in physical chemistry. Do you notice that you have an ability to think about the problem in a different way because of that background? I'm completely unbiased. I Mm. didn't study biology. So for me, everything Mm. is actually possible. There's no dogma on how things should be done. You have not been indoctrinated. No, there's nothing. So then I read, but then I'm very data driven. You know, the data show this, then I go back, but the very basic part of biology are not there. So in a way, it's liberating. Maybe everybody should have this way of becoming unbiased by being forced to switch fields. No, I think this is one of my part on the multidisciplinarity. And so I was once speaking with a very good physicist and that had a very big impact in biology. And we were discussing over lunch at that one conference and saying, oh, physicists are reductionists in the praise. They can really simplify a problem and model it. Biologists can deal with the sort of type of complexity. And so then my question is like, what's a chemist in all this? Where do we put (laughs) chemists? And it took a while to get there, but I think that chemistry and the teaching we get is intrinsically very quantitative. This is how chemistry was built, finding a periodic table and from a periodic table, find patterns. So all all this was built in a very data-driven fashion in a very quantitative. So I think that part really brings me a different way to approach a system. Yeah. So you're saying that chemistry is generally data-driven. So in your approach to biology, when you say you are very much driven by data, what does that mean? We try to get very high-quality data where we can find some patterns in the behavior of the cells. So we have this very comprehensive and data-driven initial approach to many of the projects. Priska, you said that, as I quoted at the outset, sometimes good ideas need time. How much time are we talking about here? I'm not a very patient person in general. So the part of the time is this recursive thinking part, that it's Mm. really the time of thinking and again and again. I think Also, some of the idea need to be a very good match between the PI and the student, a postdoc, or the person involved, Mm -hmm. because I cannot be the only obsessed person about that question. Mm -hmm. I have few really 
question that I'm really obsessed about or that I would love. And it's a joke in the lab because I propose <laughs> them to every new student. Uh, just no waiting for someone to bite. Yes. And I still think it would be an amazing project. And so years uh, after, it's still there. Oh, they're just waiting there. That has that interest. But I bet you'll get the last laugh because at some point someone is going to be interested in it and then it's going to be a huge discovery and then you'll tell everybody, I told you, you had your chance. Yeah, you, you could said, have done you, that, yeah. You said no. <laughs> Don't say you didn't have your chance. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting, but for the moment and every time someone, you know, there's a speaker and gives some hint in that direction, everybody, everybody looks, looks at, looks at you. <laughs> So it's one of the biggest joke in the lab, <laughs> some of these projects. So I think the time is the combination of the time it takes to mature, having the right person that is inside some of these that goes back hmm. to having the courage. I have to say many of the projects in the lab are very ambitious, a bit out of the box. And so then it's even hard for students to make an introduction to their own project because mm. it's not really clear exactly. It's not like a very specific question. You just told us how important the people in your lab, the students and postdocs, are for your science. But what role do discussions with these people play in your creative process? It's fundamental. I think I discuss a lot. So I like to present a lot of unpublished data. Most of my talk are things that are not published. And I use specific conference for preparing maybe a certain project to a certain point. And so, for example, I have a conference that's presenting a certain student's project would be great because I have a good environment to get feedback on new data and new ideas. And then I prepare already now, okay, let's try to get the presentation ready for then. And so then we build together the presentation and the idea, and we built it in four or five months to get there and to see which experiment would we require, then really doing the thinking process to get there. So I think one aspect is really pushing myself to present unpublished data. That means it's still more work than taking out that presentation that is always there already, but then using this to present new data. So then there's the discussion. And on the same way, when student and postdoc have both internal and external presentation, we'll discuss it very early on and building there the discussion on trying to understand what the data mean, how they're built. So in a way, helping them to build this internal model of what's happening. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you use conferences to set yourself a deadline yeah. for a project. I think it's very constructive. It's using a bit of the stress and the traveling that is in any case put in there. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I could say that stress is a terrible thing to waste. Yes. <laughs> Because it's there and it's part, and I think the traveling, also going to the conference, discussing with people and coming back is part of a little space, a little bubble we create for ourselves. And so I think that this is very important to use the conferences and the specific conference where you go. So choosing which one you go is also important because then you also choose the one where you want your science to develop. Maybe we should have kinds of conferences where we explicitly say, please, nothing published, only talk about the actual running, living project in your lab right now? You know, what keeps you awake at night, you know, when I'm at conferences, because then I also, after I presented, I discuss with people and I also come and that is the moment my internal model also change a lot. Discussing and presenting is a great way because I put myself out there with new ideas that I don't even manage to get completely concrete yet because it's still preliminary data, but you know, it's where also they evolve. Yeah, I think this kind of attitude to conference is 
is something that in certain spheres of science is getting lost. I think there is this trend to make things kind of more conservative. It's not good for science. We kind of forgot what is the reason we go to conferences, which is to have the discussion about projects that are still alive. You know, if the paper is published, it's essentially dead, right? Yeah, at least for you, because it's months of submission, revision, and paperwork, it's It's, done. It's done. And if you're talking about it, it's advertisement. It's not discussion for real. Well, but, you know, in the real world, (laughs) that is actually an important incentive to go to conferences, to advertise your work, to make people aware of the cool things that you did. And I think there is a place for that. Yeah, but the combination of the two, I think, can still be there, saying, okay, there's an advertisement, this was what was done but the person then can go back and read the paper. I like to call that part of science where there's the realm of advertising and grants and stuff. I call that the business of science. And I do worry that with conferences, we're letting the business take over. Yeah, part of the advertisement is just there, especially because no one is reading as much as before. Right. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, That's if people true. read less. And so often you go to conference and even if the paper is published two years before, half of the audience for sure didn't read. They don't know about it. Yeah, yeah. And they won't read it. Even if you tell them and they think it's cool, they'll write it down on a notebook and yeah. there it will stay. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying that a major motivation for you to go to conference and to present your current work is that you can get feedback and you can talk to people about that. So who are the people that, in your experience, were most useful in these talks to help you come up with new ideas and new directions? Especially, for example, in changing fields. I've been changing very often, and especially when I started my lab, I changed completely. I worked on cell-to-cell variability in 2D cells, and then all of a sudden I was working on organoid and self-organization and morphogenesis. So it was a very big change. And there were people of the new field that I would just go to the people and ask, so what do you think of this project of mine? And getting honest feedback, because I think that's sometimes a little hard in the conference to get really honest feedback on mm-hmm. people saying, yeah, actually, I think this part is good. I think this one has already been done. Did you read this paper? Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> so that, <laughs> Because especially when you change and then the bias part is great, but it's like catching up with the literature is right. not because you don't want to ignore it. You don't have biases, but you cannot ignore years and decades of science. So when you talk to people who are established in the new field that you're just moving into, What some people told us previously on the podcast was that they felt there's also a problem sometimes with talking to these people because they'll dismiss ideas that are different from the standard view. And you said one of your big advantages in a new field is that you're not indoctrinated, right? So doesn't that lead to discouragement if you talk to people who disagree just because it's against the current dogma? I have to admit that often the very established people that had some of the really initial work are very Mm open-minded. I always found people say, ah, actually, this is something we always saw and we couldn't understand. Then there's a full part of people that are very conservative and very biased. And then then I get quite strong question. This is not possible. Are you sure that this is not like this? The important Mm -hmm. here is I think it's a lonely job. At the Hmm. end, it's nice to discuss, it's nice to present, but at the end, you're the one deciding which projects to start, which student to put where, and which project to stop. 
That's interesting. Someone might say that it's actually a very interactive and interpersonal job because you're deciding with the member of the lab what their project will be, and you're always kind of on a team, right? But I can definitely relate to also what you're saying, that it's a lonely job. End point, there's one person that needs to take a decision. Mm. And it's also fair because there's one person that should have the responsibility. If Mm. something goes bad, we cannot put that to Chinese that are in the learning phase to have the responsibility if that was a good project or not. At the end, if something didn't work, I made a bad call. And I have a coach for leadership and lab management because that helps a lot in some situation. Now we are discussing on what's this combination of being an individual, because as a scientist, we need to be recognized as individuals, Mm. even as a postdoc. This is that person, this is this person work. But combined with a very serious teamwork to move project, develop technologies, and even being part of a field, you need to be a very good team player. So how to combine this individual growth with the teamwork, I think is a very big challenge our students and postdoc have at this point, because it's getting even more teamwork, more papers with more co-authors. How do you balance all this while becoming a scientist? Yeah. And Priska, you mentioned that you uh, have the luxury of having a coach that helps you think about things. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. So I started this, I think, second year when I started my lab. And in some meetings with the lab, I realized I was not very good in some aspects of the management. Mm. I was very not patient in some situation, while on others, I was really very patient. So I couldn't figure out why fully (laughs) and what was really the trigger there. Mm. And so I started with Paul. His name is Paul. And this worked extremely well. So I understood, for example, that in some meetings, it's better if I don't speak up. I'm someone that speaks up a lot Uh. (laughs) and and tells her opinion a lot. And maybe in some meetings, better not, because there's no decision that will be taken in that meeting. But then for the lab, there's all this personality test and understanding who I am. And then it was very good to also explain to the students. So they got the full report also from my coach. So they know they cannot have it all. So I'm someone with a lot of energy and enthusiasm and, and come up with two million ideas. But then if you ask me to look at controls for three hours, I don't have a lot of patience. And I try really hard and I said, but it's not the space where I will shine. Mm -hmm. And this is the explanation that you cannot have it all. And that also students and postdoc are like this. And, And I thought that part that was extremely helpful for them also to not feel wrong or right. We are really different. And I think this is really some traits that we need to learn. We need to learn what we are good at, what we need more space and forgive ourselves in what we are less good and surrounding ourselves with people that actually support you in the part where you're less good or it's not that you're less good, it's where you need to put more energy in. So if I need to spend three hours in looking at control, I need to spend more energy to do that than spending three hours brainstorming on the next ideas. And so I need also to put my meetings in a certain way that I don't have four meetings in a row where I do something that takes a lot of energy. Hmm. So I think the coach helped a lot in that part. So that's really interesting. Not only that it helped you to better understand yourself, to better understand where your strengths are and where, as you said, you just have to put in maybe too much energy for something. But also I found it very interesting that you shared those insights with the people in your lab. So did that totally change your interaction with people in your lab? A little bit. 
it changed because it was a more real way to speak with some people and understanding this energy balance. Everybody's able to do everything. It's just how much energy it takes. And then if that person is a bit in an off day, clearly some traits come out more easily. So it changed and also to make sure that people understand it's not right or wrong, especially if there are a few females in some places here in Europe, they're not. So there's this role model. And then it seems that the only way to succeed is to be in that role model. But it's very far from that. I have very good colleagues that are so different from me and very successful. And so I think students and especially female students see that that's the way to be. While I think that's really helped us to just define there are many ways to get there. And for male, you have more example around you. Would you say that for you, watching examples of scientists was important? Do you have role models for yourself? Yeah, so there are role models for all different type of things. I had my PhD supervisor. He was presenting data very early. So that was something that was driving me a little bit crazy when I was a PhD student that barely had a result and it was already shown. And then I thought, okay, <laughs> it's almost too much. Had a postdoc supervisor, very conceptual. And I think that was very important to really get a certain point, this step back to understand conceptually what we are actually looking at. As role model as female, I remember one of my mentor is great female scientist and she's also very feminine. And I thought, ah, Actually, it was some years ago, and I thought, ah, you can be feminine and be very strong in your opinion and all fit. While often, especially many years ago, I think now things have changed, but there were not that many role models where you had this combination. And Priska, we talked a little bit about the challenges of the job, but I think it would be a shame not to highlight your favorite aspects of the job as well. You know, there's so many good things. So... What for you are the most enjoyable aspects of doing science? Thank you for the question, because I hope that from the way I speak, it's clear the passion I have for this job. Oh, and absolutely. Absolutely. That's why, yeah. <laughs> so for me, I think this combination of flexibility and independence that it gives, that you can build it with building blocks as you want and the people you meet, and then you go to this different conference and you can build on top and you never stop learning and you can change and the flexibility. I have two small kids. Small kids, now it's a big overstatement. They're nine and 10, not that small anymore. No, but, they're uh, still cute at that age. Yeah, they're still <laughs> cute. They're not yet. They still want to spend time with me. Let's yeah. put it down. <laughs> yeah, they exactly. still enjoy spending time with me. And so I can take a few hours out on an afternoon to bring them to the doctor if I'm organized and work a few hours more in the evening. And so I think this flexibility is unique for the work we have with on top the reward we get also for the ideas we have. We can test our ideas. Going yeah. back a bit to the beginning, we said there's this truth that we have to see if our idea is true. Yeah. But this is a luxury. We can test if our ideas are true. And then there's this moment you're there and you see something and you know that in that moment, you're still the only person knowing it, mm. that you had your ideas. You see it's true. It just happened. Mm. And at that point, you share it. Yesterday, a postdoc, and I was leaving late, and she said, oh, I was in the train. Please connect, because there was a piece of data she really wanted to show, because at that point, we are now the only two knowing that. These are the moments that is just incredible yeah. that this job gives us. The excitement of discovery. Yeah. It's like a drug. You know, sometimes... I think we scientists are just 
kind of like drug addicts because there must be some neurotransmitter. What is it? <laughs> Something in the brain that we crave every time we make a discovery, it's released and we would just want more of it. Yeah, absolutely. Just like discover. <laughs> yes. The junkies of discovery. I like that term. <laughs> so, Prisco, is there something else that we didn't cover? Yeah, final words. I think it was something that a bit came up. How do we distinguish something that is a great idea or a good idea and a bad idea? Oh, yes. And I don't yes. have an answer for that because at least for me, it's still something it's very gut feeling related. It's hmm. very hard to have a constructive way to decide what's good or not, probably is what can be tested or not easy, you know, if the person fits, maybe hearing also what you think. Mm. How can we really distinguish between great and bad idea in science? I think it's very subjective. I think we each bring our own individual narrative, like you with your training in physical chemistry and then going into cell biology, thinking about systems, like you, you, because of your trajectory, the uniqueness of you as an individual, you bring a kind of subjective aesthetic feel for what you find interesting. And so you might think this is a great idea because of what you are. It may not be a great idea in the eyes of other people, but who cares? It's a good idea for you and it's enough to keep you passionate and motivated to think about it. That's how I feel about so, it. So bad idea don't exist? <laughs> it's all a question of ideas. <laughs> well, if you don't think it's a bad idea, then it's not a bad idea, I think. But on the other hand, as scientists, we don't only work for our own entertainment. In the end, we also want to tell the world about our discoveries. And at least most of us, I think, are happy if the world cares, right? Like if our colleagues care about something we found. If we talk about it at the conference and people say, oh, wow, that's interesting. That's something at least I'm very happy when I get that. Mm. And I think as humans, we have generally a good intuition for what other people find interesting and what they don't find interesting, right? And it's probably related to what we expect and what disagrees with that. It's something that you said at the beginning of this conversation, that you sometimes move into a field and you find that things, when you look at the data, actually don't fit with what people generally assume. And I think that's where things get interesting. If you find something that's unexpected. Martin and I just said two kind of polar opposite views because mine was more intrinsic to the person and Martin was more communal. What does the community think about the idea? And maybe it's a two-step process like that. Like first you start with what you think is interesting and then you go to the conference and hopefully talk about it because you don't just talk about published things and then you find out what they think about it. And maybe a good idea needs to meet both criteria. But what is it for you, Priska? Is it more intrinsic or more extrinsic what you think makes something interesting? I think there's a very strong intrinsic component for me and the lab. In the sense, I take me and the lab as intrinsic. It's like on what we yeah. discuss in lab meeting and, you know, what is driving us in this almost obsession. But clearly the feedback from the community is very important, especially changing field. This for me is essential. It's really a benchmark to say, okay, is this relevant for anything? Mm. Is this something that people apart care about? So one aspect that I always a bit like is like when, you give a talk and people are thinking, okay, where do I put this now in my model? You're telling them something that is not per se expected, but it's connecting to their world in a certain way. So yes, it's like a strong intrinsic lab intrinsic component plus the feedback from the people. Oh, you're saying that the audience will want to know, okay, how does this change what I think about something? If it doesn't change 
any model that I already have in my mind, then what is it? I don't know what to do with this idea. I don't know where to put it. Yes. So maybe a good idea also comes with a label of what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, or what someone else does with it. But having some type of connection on a general principle of how we think mm. things work might be very far from my field, but it's something that actually make us think a little different. And what is actual knowledge gained in the process of that idea? Yeah, interesting. Well, Prisca, this has been really a fascinating discussion. And thank you so yeah. much for joining us. For sharing your views. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing to Martin and I. We keep thinking, okay, this will be the last podcast because you know <laughs> there's nothing more to say. This person just said it all. And then we talk to you now and you just say a whole bunch of new things that we've never heard. We're like, wow. And then we have to think about that. So thank you for inspiring us. No, thank you. This has been really great. A very nice conversation. And then uh, hope to meet you then in person soon at a certain point. Mm-hmm.